They were sitting in a circle, so what do you do to people sitting in a circle? You drop a grenade right in the middle of them. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your country. That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you were going to funerals quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. You have to be resilient to get a poke. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. You should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. This podcast is the second instalment of Angus Horton's conversation with former SAS officer Nick Howlett, a veteran of the Vietnam War. Be sure to listen to Volume 1 before continuing with this episode. Their conversation picks up on a patrol in the jungles of Vietnam. Nick, with the five-man squad... What armaments, like were you M16s, SLRs, um, what were you carrying? Yeah, by 1969, the armaments have improved a little bit for good ambush power, 7.62 SLR. There's no mistake. Once you hit with that, you don't get back up. Yeah, yeah. As patrol commander, I carried 5.56, the Armalite or the M16, because underneath I carried an M203 yeah. Uh, grenade launcher. Grenade launcher, yeah. Yes, and inside the grenade launcher, we could put shrapnel, put solid shot, we could put um, smoke, gas. Phosphorus, yeah. Yeah, yeah, phosphorus. We'd, we'd load phosphorus at night because you had more chance of inflicting injury uh, if you heard something and you'd let a phosphorus round straight through. Your patrol belt probably weighed about, I don't know, 15 kilos, thereabouts, maybe more. I've got it all documented somewhere. Mm. That stayed on with you forever. On that, you carried your survival equipment and all your ammunition. And then your rucksack, your backpack, probably a good 20, 30 kilos. In the wet weather, in the dry season, we had to carry water. So we'd carry three or four days water and then hope to find a a creek bed. And one day I did dig for water and this green slime came up. It was the best slime ever. The other hot extraction was an opportunity ambush. A group of five stopped on a track, sat down and started to have a smoke. One guy decided to keep standing and, and have a look around. We were in um, in file, that's one behind the other, and we didn't know the track was there because we hadn't arrived there. And these guys come down, oh, I say it's about 10 metres away. So you remember I said I took out the odd cook, bottle washer and signaller. I took out the unit photographer and I said, right, do you want to get in the firefight? I made him forward scout so he can have the first shot and and be the eyes and ears of the patrol. So he zeroed in on this guy still standing and they're sitting in a circle. So what do you do to people sitting in a circle? You drop a grenade right in the middle of them, shake them up a little bit and then go in and finish off. So I signal this to the scout, take off the grenade, you're ready. So he was going to head shoot the, the guy still standing. I would throw the grenade at the same time and the contact was underway. All right, John Wayne. So the grenade hits the branch, bounces back, and I send shrapnel into my scout's foot and it hits his heel, runs up the calf of his leg. He say, oh, I'm hit, I'm hit, I'm hit. The guy behind me in returning fire then had a jammed weapon. So out of five weapons, I'm down two. There's only three weapons that we can return fire with. And everything turned to shit after that. So I break contact, call for a hot extraction because I couldn't 
confirm we knew one was dead but i couldn't confirm that the others were and uh, that was the second hot extraction invariably in war everything always goes wrong sort of thing and and as you say you know just compounds compounds but you know fortunately you were able to extract yourself out of that do you remember any sort of lighter or funnier times in your deployment? The funnier times were probably spin-offs for stress relief. We had a rat problem up there. Now, we're not talking about your field mice in Forbes, Dubbo and Parks and that sort of thing. We're talking about monsters that are the size of a, a regular cat and they have nasty yellow teeth. They're running over the tents because... When we came back from the boozer, the first thing you do is to light up a long-range reconnaissance patrol dehydrated pack and you have a feed. You then fall asleep. So the rats would come in and clean up and they got so bad we had rat patrols. So <laughs> we devised all ways of capturing and then dispatching these rats. It was so bad that someone said, let's bring in some cats. Now, the cats were the same size as the rats and we then had a cat problem. <laughs> so we, we then had to eradicate the cats. We could spend all day talking about the active part of your service in Vietnam, but you leave Vietnam eventually. Can you tell us about your post-Vietnam service? Because you were involved with some US special forces. In 1971, I did six months at the Jungle Training Centre. And then my name came up to do long-term special forces training in America with the 5th Special Forces Group at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So I spent 18 months in the States doing a whole range of um, US Special Forces courses, uh, pathfinders, demolitions, of parachute um, experimenting journey, El Centro, California. And the parachuting was the main reason for the tour. But did you find that by staying in the military but being posted over to America, that that helped you sort of to try and adjust to the, you know, the horrors that you'd gone through with Vietnam and all the stress? You were still in the military, but effectively, you know, you weren't on the front line and you were training, and the American situation was so much different to what we're used to. It didn't affect me until 1995 or thereabouts. Being totally immersed into the Special Forces environment that I was and loving every minute, every day I put the uniform on, I was going out to do something exciting um, or dangerous or both, and I, I really didn't have any after effects. Going over to the States, I just met other very professional soldiers, the, and I learned a lot about the US Special Forces um, people there. But the, one of the main reasons is to become Australia's halo chief instructor, high altitude, low opening. And we did a lot of halo jumps. Uh, the highest was 25,000 feet, and we did that at day. And then uh, later in the week, we did another one at night over North Carolina somewhere. Not a light on the ground. I just missed a pigsty. It's a long time in free fall. Minus 50 degrees when you jump out of the plane. So we have oxygen in our kit and we have oxygen consoles inside the C5A. We did it from Hercules and from Starlifters. I ended up with about 800 odd jumps. And part of the job was to go to El Centro Parachute Test Center at, um, near Brownsfield, California, and experiment. These are parachutes the American services wanted to bring into service. And we had to jump them from a variety of aircraft. And on one day, we had to jump them from a pre-3 Orion, which is uh, were based in Adelaide in the early years, um, to see if we got hung up on any of the fuselage or the, all the antennas. And you look outside and these bloody sticks, antennas and wires everywhere. But uh, we got clear of it. And um, we then certified that parachute off. It, it, it seems to me that, I mean, if you 
left Vietnam and you're, you're deployed with the Special Forces guys in America and you're still loving it. I mean, that's, that's great. How's your marriage going? You know, is your wife with you over there? How's that all been handled? Yes, it was in company posting. Poor old Jennifer, she was six months pregnant when we flew across. She was six months pregnant when we came back. Yeah, so it was in a company posting. And the idea is that you live off your allowances, which were very generous, and you save your military salary. And it was well known within the services if you got an overseas junker to England or India or Pakistan or America, that's what you did. So you lived frugally over there off your allowances. And of course, we had the deposit for a house when we came back. The high altitude, freefall high altitude parachuting was specifically so that I could come back and be the defence advisor on doing that. And I gave my advice several times and nearly every time that advice was, General, if you haven't got another way to get into the operation, don't use parachute. He said it's the worst possible deployment method under the sun, certainly for large groups. They're fine for special forces, but not for the days of parachute regiment and parachute companies and that are long gone. Well, I think actually, if you look back at um, how the airborne, you know, the 82nd and the 101st were deployed, you know, at Normandy, and um, and even though some will say, well, they did achieve a lot of disruption, but as you say, trying to deploy, you know, companies, regiments, you know, a, as a cohesive unit, it, it's a very difficult thing. So you enjoy your time in America and you come back to Australia. What are your roles then? Sent straight back to SAS for another two years as the senior instructor of the air wing. One of the squadrons over there, the non-saver squadron, was called Training Squadron. And I was assigned as the captain uh, instructor on air wing and basically responsible for all air operations in SAS. I then was moved across to SAS operations officer for the whole of the regiment, which was a, a tick in the box. It was a major's slot, but I hadn't yet been promoted, so they put me in as a captain. Having that deep depth of tri-service uh, experience, because the water operations usually involve the Navy, air operations always involve the Air Force. So you start to build a network of friends in the Navy and the, the Air Force, and we speak a common language. So that it, it wasn't a case of a green baggy suit and a blue baggy suit. It's just a good day, Nick, you back for another one? Yep, let's do it. And you, you go straight into it. Such is the, the level of the professionalism that we just hone our skills and rehearse and rehearse and, and, and rehearse. Basically, at the end of um, 1974, that's the end of my serving in SAS, but I still served on SAF Special Action Forces and, and whole parachute school and all that sort of thing. That's where I am, and uh, 1975, everyone's got to do an Army Reserve posting as a regular Army officer, so they gave me Headquarters 3 Division, Albert Park, Melbourne. It was a low point in my career. It was a box-ticking exercise. You had to do a junior staff appointment with an Army Reserve unit, and there's method in their madness because when you become a senior commander later, you've got to understand how the Army Reserve is structured and that sort of thing. Then uh, promoted major and... They said, right, too much special forces in Howlett. They sent me off as an infantry company commander for three years to Nogra 8-9 Battalion. So I was de-specialised. And you eventually, as I understand it, end up in Canberra, as most senior military people do. Oh, from the rifle company, couldn't believe it. I got a second overseas, a company junket, posted uh, as a major, posted to the US Marine Corps uh, Staff College at Quantico, Virginia. Same place as the, the FBI Academy. That was a buzz. That's, uh, Staff College is a sabbatical. Uh, there's no footwork involved except to go and see Battle of Gettysburg or something like that. It was a buzz. It's where, it, okay, put it as a master's degree in military science. 
that's the qualification the American students get. But, uh, you know, our education system, oh, no, we don't like foreign qualifications. That was preparing you for higher command. Then sent to the Canberra, Directorate of Special Action Forces. By this stage, the two commando companies, the SAS Regiment, and they were just forming um, one commando regiment to be raised at Randwick. And that was a regular Army Lieutenant Colonel with two Army Reserve companies, one commando and two commando, and three battalion were going to come on strength also as a parachute battalion. Fortunately, they, they dropped that idea later. Uh, then got promoted, Lieutenant Colonel became the Staff Officer Grade 1 Special Action Forces. This put me in charge of all operation, for all intents and purposes, running and controlling of all Special Forces operations, including counterterrorism in Australia. I had a full colonel above me, Reg Beasley, who was my Vietnam squadron commander. Reg and I, very tight, sadly died a few years back. In infantry, all lieutenant colonels, young lieutenant colonels, are looking for their first command, unit command. You need a unit command to go on to Brigadier. Well, highly desirable. Up for grabs was the commanding officer of one commando regiment at Randwick, a regular army posting in a reserve structure, commanding officer of SAS regiment, for which I was more than qualified, and commanding officer of the Parachute Training School. Now... Which one do you reckon? And there were three of us vying for this. My Vietnam mate, Chris Roberts, my very good friend, Phil Gould, and myself are up for the three jobs. <laughs> because of that commando parachuting way back when and the parachute jump instructor training way back when, they said, Hal, you're only going to go to one place, and that is the chief instructor, commanding officer of the parachute school. Phil Gould went and commanded the first commander of the commando regiment, and uh, Chris Roberts went over to SAS regiment. As the, as the CO, we, you only get one shot at what they call unit command. But there was a twister to my posting. It was still at RAAF base Williamtown, and I started up there jumping in out of Dakotas. That's very early 60s. By now, we, we had, of course, Caribou and the, the Hercules. I commanded it there for two years and was told the whole school had to be moved down to Naval Air Station Nowra because HMAS Melbourne had paid off and the fleet air arm were bleating. The mayor of Nowra was bleating, saying, we've lost all our income. We need an army unit down here to fill in. And uh, Phil Bennett said, yeah, we're going to send you the parachute school. Oh, who are they? Oh, you know, the guys with the Red Berets. Splashed across the Nowra news was the next week was lock up your wives and daughters. The Red Berets are coming to town. So I went on a two-week hearts and minds bloody tour of the Shoalhaven to tell everyone, hey, look, I'm a regular guy. Yeah, I shoot people, but I'm not doing that anymore. So I moved the school down in uh, February 1984, 56, and then commanded it for another year. The very first injury we had after I took it to Naval was myself. My friend Reg Beasley, who was commander of the South, was now commander in Tasmania here, and he, he said, Nick, bring your Red Beret parachute display team down for the Hobart Regatta in February 1986. And I said, oh, yeah, right. And he said, do something special. And I'd done plenty of Red Beret public displays. Right, I will drop onto a huge barge in the middle of the Derwent River. Said, it's a Navy thing. We went down. The weather was bad. We couldn't do a rehearsal. We had inaccurate weather information. And there's a lot of micro weather systems down here in Tass, I can tell you. We had to lower the altitude from 10,000 feet down to 6,000. We did what's called a hop and pop. You hop out the back and, and pop the parachute and you fly, pop your smoke and streamers and, and cloud all go, ooh. And uh, of the eight, the, the spot was missed. Of the eight, one went straight in. Another had a malfunction, cut away and went into the water on his reserve. 
and I slammed into the side of the pontoon oh. at about 20 miles an hour. Oh, I'm so sorry. Just just yeah. broke up my right leg. Now, see that oh. parish? It yeah. looks white. It's actually a very pale blue. It was called a McAfee. Again, as the role of the chief instructor and CEO of the parachute school, I had to approve and sign off on all new equipment coming into the Army. And this was an experimental parachute built by Australians, so we were keen, but it had never been jumped in a display, and that was one of the boxes I had to tick. You had to do a whole lot with this, underload, not underload, and all that sort of thing. And it had trim tabs on it, so I was so far away from the pontoon, I pulled on the trim tabs and accelerated my speed, but it accelerated my rate of descent. And over water, without a reference point, it's very hard to see how far you are. You don't know. He said, now, 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 bang, now. And I um, slammed into the side. And that was effectively the end of my military career. I was Hobart Hospital, repat for the rest of the year, walking around on crutches and walking sticks as CEO of the parachute school. I was a great, a great advertisement for parachute. Well, I mean, and, and Nick, with respect, after such a distinguished service with the military at the highest level at Special Forces, I mean, the SAS is as good as it gets. Yeah, I mean, I feel for you. What an anticlimactic way to finish. You basically then are medically discharged and, and you leave the army? No, uh, not quite. I think it's important at this stage to bring up the PTSD thing, which had never bothered me. And the psychiatrist decades later told me, he said, usually it doesn't come out in people like professional servicemen, ambulance and police and all that sort of stuff, until there's been a significant event that brings it all crashing down. So with that crash into the pontoon, we had four children. Jennifer had had enough. She never understood the whole Vietnam thing. We stayed married for 23 years, four wonderful children, and she had really had enough. And we weren't living out of a suitcase anymore. We had bought a farm south of Queanbeyan. We had some sheep on it. I was doing up the homestead. And that's when everything unraveled. I received a posting order to the Joint Services Staff College in Canberra. Uh, that's for senior lieutenant colonels. You go there. It's followed by promotion to full colonel. And from there, um, you usually get picked up as for brigadier. I had specialised in joint warfare almost since Commandos 1963, whatever. And uh, I was to be the next um, commandant of the joint warfare establishment at, at Rathbase Williamtown, as it happened. And all that, I was a week away from going to the college when they, they said, look, you'll never serve more than 50 kilometres from a capital city. That's how far downgraded. Stay in the service. You, you've got an excellent service record. Stay in the service, stay behind a desk. But that's not why I signed up. And I, I was very close to retirement. I, I think I was six months away from official retirement because the military, they promote you and with a time date in that rank. And if the two coincide, the promotion and the time date, that's your retirement without penalty. So mm. I took a small penalty and um, took early retirement. So I, I, I can't be, you know, you, you don't go down as Lieutenant Colonel Nick Howlett retired. So, yes, I left the service then in 1989. Nick, how have you handled the PTSD since then? With great difficulty. I left it too late to claim the PTSD. I've got all the other injury things. The Special Forces training is dangerous. We kill people. We injure people. When I went to Vietnam or by the end of Vietnam, we had killed eight of our own uh, in one way or another. That's um, nothing to do with enemy action. So I thought I'd better get this looked at. And I think I was on DVA 70% of the general rate, $100 a week. The PTSD, I, I started to lose it. I'm now on my third marriage. Camilla and I have been married 14 years next month. She absolutely saved my life. Caring, understanding, empathetic. She said, thank God I didn't know you when you were 
in the army because I don't like army people. <laughs> and I said, all right, English, half French, half English. Back to this photograph. On the, on the back, I've written the date. The first hot extraction was 17 September 69. The second one was the 21st of October 1969. That is my wife's birthday. And while I was being shot out and hauled through the jungle at the end of the rope, my wife turned 15 that day. She says, don't tell anyone that. So there's 11 years between us. And uh, she's been with me in the, the farming and the, the boating gig. It's all her idea. I'd be in a house, but I do love boating. And she adores it, absolutely loves boating. It's a funny way how people find love and happiness. And look, if she's 11 years older or younger or the same, I mean, the end of the day, she's a person that loves you. And you've sent me this beautiful picture of this fishing trawler. And I can just see you there very peacefully taking in life. And you in special forces, the level of stress and anxiety and fighting and everything that builds from it. I mean, it's, it, it's at the most dangerous highest level and I don't know how you, you come off that and I'm just glad you found her I'm glad you found this boat I mean Alex and I've had a bit of trouble trying to catch up with you because you're at sea and then you're traveling yeah, around right. and, and and look you've just found your peace and, I, and I'm grateful of that you were also asked by the military when they had these defense resettlement seminars oh yes. um, yeah. and you'd have to get up in front of all these people and say we'll go over 25 years, this is my experience. And then then insult you by saying, well, you've only got, you know, five minutes or something to tell us. But you've come up with a pretty simple philosophy and I was hoping you could perhaps share that with us. Yes. Everyone leaving the Defence Force has to go through a resettlement seminar. When I did it in 1988-89, it was people who had 20 years service or more or who were being medically discharged. In 2003, when I was asked to participate as a presenter, I was told I had 10 minutes to give some sort of advice to the 250-odd pre-discharged defence people there who were leaving for whatever reason. Someone may have put the uniform on and said, oh, it scratches, I don't like it, and discharge right through to your 30- and 40-year veterans were in the audience for that. And given just 10 minutes, they wanted me to talk about briefly the military background and then what have they done in the 25 years since. I started the laundry list at all, and it could go on for an hour if, if I presented it. So I thought, well, have what one message I leave anybody? And it's not about leaving the military and going into civvy. It's about what's upstairs in your head and your attitude to it. You just carry on being the person. You just carry on being Angus Horton. You carry on being Nick Howlett. The changing of the uniform doesn't make any difference. It's what's messed up in your head and the consequences of that that makes you different. So I came up with this thing, what did, what's Nick Howlett observed throughout his whole life? And it came up with power. I have the power, P-O-W-E-R. And P stands for passionate. Be absolutely passionate about whatever you do. You and Alex are passionate about the podcast. It motivates you to keep you going. O, open your eyes and ears and listen to what people are really saying or what they're really doing. Post-Army, I owned a bottle shop at Canoundra, New South Wales. Best business I ever owned. That little till rang off very handsomely every week. Customs would come in and say, Nick, I've got something special coming up next week. What would you suggest? I sort of had a general idea what my customer's like. And then he wouldn't say any more. But next week when he came in, I'd present him with two or three bottles and say, look, here's a choice of champagnes, muskets, or saturns, whatever. Or, Nick, do you reckon I could get this sort of wine or, or, or something like that or... You know, I really do love a, a good port. So you'd listen to what your customer's saying. And when Angus Houston came in next week, 
you had, oh, how did you know? And he said, well, you mentioned it last week. So listen to what people are saying. Um, and what's the message? W, who you are. Sorry, Angus Houston, you're never going to be Prime Minister of Australia. You're too decent a fellow. You understand your strengths, your weaknesses and your limitations. Don't try and become something that you're not listening. Try and become something that fits naturally and sits naturally with you. E, enjoy what you do. There is a difference between passionate and enjoying what you do. And R, have respect for yourself and all those around you. So power, you have the power. Be passionate about what you do. Keep your eyes and ears open and really listen to what your mentors and teachers and family and your kids are saying. What's the message behind their words? Um, know who you are and your limitations. Enjoy what you do and have respect for those around you. What does it do unto you? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you? Still there. Nick, I think that philosophy of yours about power, the passionate, opening the eyes, who you are, enjoying what you're doing, respect, says it all about you. Nick, I'd just like to thank you so much for taking the time to share your incredible story with us today. I'm so glad that you found happiness at last, despite all the fighting and hardship and work you've been through. And thank you for your service to this nation, because the likes of you have just made us the better place we are today. And we're very grateful. And for all those people that didn't treat you well when you came back from Vietnam, there's a whole nation that loves you now. So we just wanted to thank you for talking to us today on Life on the Line. And we wish you all the best of luck on that lovely sea trawler of yours that I'm looking at now down in the Tamar. Nick Howlett, thank you for your time and thank you for your service. Angus, thank you so much, Alex, and thank you for the original invitation. It's just so enjoyable to be able to chat with someone you can trust and empathises and understand. Thank you very much, Angus Ward. We're thankful to Nick for coming on the show. This year, we're releasing our veteran conversations every fortnight. Stay subscribed so you know when a new episode drops. And for more SAS in Vietnam stories, go back to Season 2 and listen to Thomas Kay's conversations with an SAS trooper from that era. Number 18, Don Barnby, Volume 1. Listening for enemy, looking for enemy signs and all this sort of stuff, not knowing what's around the next tree, around the next bend. And Volume 2. It's still raw with me, what happened up there, because we're unarmed and the atrocities that were going on were, were you know, horrendous, right up to murder and rape and all that sort of stuff, and it was just horrendous. You can also listen to the group podcast panel that I hosted, Panel, Life After Service. As soon as they hear PTSD, all the perceptions are wrong, they, they, they're negative perceptions, whereas what they should be, the stories that should be out there are people that have been diagnosed with PTSD for whatever reason and that have overcome it. For more stories of hot helicopter extractions of the SAS in Vietnam, listen to my Season 3 conversation with helicopter pilot number 50, Alastair Bridges. The first time I realised that things weren't good was when one of our older pilots said to me, Al, do you realise we've had 40 hot extractions in a row? That means going in there and pulling the SAS out under fire. And then watch Thomas's follow-up interview with Don on YouTube in the video documentary series, Life After Service. These people need to be looked after and they need to know that they can be looked after without affecting their career because yeah, that's their life. And they did it. They volunteered. They did it willingly. We're on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. 
Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>